0: To our Scripture reading, Matthew twenty one, verses twenty three to twenty seven. Excuse me, excuse me for those of you who are listening. This without having it happen a third time. There. All right. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. This is God's word. Listen reverently and carefully to it as I read it. Starting verse 23. And when he had come into the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which, if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us uh, through the patriarchs and through the prophets and through the apostles, but preeminently through the person and work of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that uh You, Lord Jesus, are the author of the Holy Scriptures. You are the Word of God. And uh, you are the great prophet of the Church. And it is you who have given these words to us. Uh, And it is you who also make these words come alive afresh through the preaching of the Word. We ask that you would do that now. That you would help me, your unworthy servant. And that you would bless all of us uh that we might better serve you and display our love for you and our gratitude to you for what you have done for us in being our substitute. We ask this in your name. Amen. Kids, um, sometimes, not very often, I'm sure, but sometimes, you children uh, do things that are wrong, that are sinful. You disobey your parents at times. I certainly did when I was a young boy. Um, I wasn't even, I wasn't a believer back then. I didn't know Jesus. I hope uh, you younger children do that are here, um, but uh, I didn't. But sometimes uh, when children disobey their parents, um, their parents will do different things. Uh, and I'm not recommending this to any of you parents. Uh, This is not a way to handle your child's disobedience. But I think this happened to me once in a while when I was a kid. I can't remember a specific incident. Um, And I might have possibly done this with my children when they were younger. Uh, I don't recall that either. But I know I've heard this done uh, somewhere. And if if a child disobeys a parent, sometimes a parent will say, I will give you one last chance to obey me. You never give them one last chance. You tell them to obey you, parents, and then, then let the consequences happen if they don't. But sometimes parents will, because they're a little bit perhaps lazy or distracted, they'll say, I'll give you one last chance to obey me. Um, and uh, and that, that will happen sometimes, and perhaps you children have heard that once or twice. Now, when parents do that to their children, that's inappropriate. That's inappropriate. Uh, That's not the best parenting method, uh, method. but when God does that to His sinful children, and He doesn't always do it, but when He does it, it's a very, very gracious thing when He does that to His covenant children. Not all of whom are converted, by the way. Just because you're a covenant child doesn't mean you're, you're truly love Jesus and are trusting Jesus. We hope you are uh but uh my point is there there is a, a covenant uh that is made inwardly with all the elect but then there is a uh outward expression of that covenant in the community which includes not just wheat but also tares people who are pretending to be believers um, or who think they are believers but aren't i say all this children because in the text we have before us Jesus is confronted by some members of the covenant community, actually leaders in the Old Testament covenant church. That's what I mean by covenant community, the Old Testament church. Uh, The leaders of the church were in covenant with God. Um, But they were not covenant keepers. They were not trusting in Jehovah. Uh, They did not love Jehovah. They said they did, but they did not. Uh, They were trusting in themselves, but they professed to be followers of Jehovah. Uh, And so they were in covenant, outwardly at least, with Jehovah. Uh, And Jesus, of course, is Jehovah, enfleshed. Uh, And we're going to see in this passage, Jesus actually giving these wicked men the opportunity One last chance to obey him and trust him, as you'll see in this passage. And it's an act of enormous grace on God's part that they didn't deserve, uh, but was a gracious uh, um, offer, if you will, from Jesus, uh, Jehovah incarnate, that they, well, well, we'll see, you'll see what happens. So, just remind a quick reminder of what's been going on uh, prior to this point in the uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we have seen in the uh, in the last few weeks that we have been in this in Matthew's Gospel. We we looked at the triumphal entry, Jesus uh, riding into Jerusalem, accompanied by uh, Passover pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and also as he is approaching Jerusalem, pilgrims that are already in Jerusalem see Jesus coming, and a crowd comes down to meet. Uh, Jesus and and the crowd that is also approaching um, the the city, the holy city. And it was holy back then. Um, At any rate, um, the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus coming in and uh, all the accolades that were given to him, uh, the shouts of uh, uh, Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and so on. That happened. Also you recall there was the cursing of the fig tree, the initial cursing when Jesus initially uh went up. Um uh and that was fig tree symbolizing the external expression of the Old Testament church. Um and then there was the cleansing of the temple that Jesus um uh engaged in, cleansing uh, the temple of the ungodly uh, uh merchants uh and uh tax uh, uh money changers that were in the uh, temple precinct where they should not have been. Um, engaging in commerce. There are three things that we're going to look at in the next few minutes. Uh, First, we're going to look at Jesus' challenge from the leaders of the Old Testament church, the Jewish church, I'll call it. Um, Then we're going to look at Jesus' response to the leaders of the Old Testament church. And then finally, we are going to look at the hard-heartedness of the leaders of the Old Testament church. First, Jesus' challenge from the leaders of the Old Testament church. It is now Tuesday morning of the last week of Jesus' life, often called Passion Week. Um, Jesus and his disciples have just arrived in Jerusalem after spending the previous night in Bethany, uh, down the hill and to the east, around around the Mount of Olives, behind the Mount of Olives, where Bethany was located. And you recall that as on Tuesday, uh, as their uh, coming, uh, they passed that withered, now withered, which Jesus had cursed the previous day, the withered fig tree on their way into the city. Remember that fig- pre- figured Israel, the, the Jewish church, the Old Testament, um, if you will, Old Covenant expression of the church, withered and dead. So Jesus has passed that. He's now arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples and he proceeds to go to the Temple Mount which is on the east side of the city overlooking the Kidron Valley. Uh, And it is there on the Temple Mount where this episode that we're reading about uh, here uh, takes place. A crowd of people sees Jesus as he is walking. Uh, He is strolling about in the temple grounds. We learn this from um, one of the other accounts. Uh, he is strolling about, uh, uh, I believe it's Mark's account, on the temple grounds, and crowds see him, people see him, and they, and they approach him as he is walking in, in the, uh, one of the courts, presumably, of the temple. Uh, and Jesus begins to teach them as he is walking, and he teaches them, and he proclaims to them, we are told, in Luke's gospel, the gospel, or the, uh, the, he preaches to them the salvation message, the gospel, as he's walking, as he's going. And it is while he is walking and teaching and preaching to the peoples that his opponents approach him with this challenge, the um, religious leaders. Now, let's talk about the religious leaders, uh, who they're comprised of. Well, they're comprised of three groups, only two of which are mentioned in uh, Matthew's Gospel. The third is mentioned in Mark's account in Mark 11. But the first group that uh, that is contained in this group of people he, uh, he describes there in verse 23 as the chief priests. Now, these included the current ruling high priest, um, the Sadducean high priest. It included him, but it also included those who had previously held the office of high priest. There was a rotation, uh, apparently, of the high uh, priests. And so those who had retired from the office were also part of the chief priests' group, as well as certain other Sadducees uh, from, uh, who, from whom the high priestly uh, high priests were drawn, would also have been included, perhaps in that group of chief priests. There was another group described as in Matthew's or Mark's account as the scribes. The scribes were those men who studied, um, who interpreted and taught principally. Uh, taught the law of Moses, and that was comprised mostly of Pharisees. The scribes were mostly, although not all necessarily, Pharisees, but they studied, interpreted, and taught the law. And then there was the final group that's mentioned here in Matthew's account, and that is the elders of the people. These were uh, the heads of Israel's various tribal divisions, that existed in Jesus' day that were still identifiable. And they were the heads of those various tribal divisions. They were, if you will, the lay members of the Sanhedrin or the, or the council, the religious council. So these three groups, chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people, um, approached Jesus as a group. Um, and he, there were probably, one can guess, because all three uh, uh, segments of the Sanhedrin are mentioned here, um or in the various accounts, that it's probably an official delegation from the Sanhedrin to to interrogate Jesus. And they say to him, in verse 23, they say, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They're essentially, in effect, saying to Jesus, Show us your credentials. Where's, where, do you, where do you get off saying all these things and doing all these things that you're doing? How do you, how do you have that right? What, what, um, what credentials do you have? Now, this was an attempt on their part to, among other things probably, uh, to not just to entrap Jesus, but also to embarrass Jesus, which would help them to entrap him. Um, if Jesus had admitted that he had no official credentials, um, like they did, uh, some of these men, if he admitted that, um, then the people who were all around would have almost certainly lost a degree of respect for him by hearing him admit, well, I, I actually don't have credentials like you gentlemen do. So that would have helped their their cause to entrap him uh, on the other hand if Jesus uh, believed that he had the authority to do the things that he had been doing and said so to them then they could accuse him at least of assuming that Jesus uh, or that Jesus had assumed to himself rights and privileges that only belonged to God and therefore that would be blasphemous and they could accuse him of blasphemy Well Jesus doesn't do either of these things. He doesn't outright say I don't have credentials and he doesn't outright uh, or admit that he doesn't have credentials and he doesn't outright say uh, that he has authority. What he does is something else. Before we get to what he does, I want to note something. He says, by what authority, the, 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 uh, the religious leaders say, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, let's talk about, for a moment, what he means, uh, what the text means by these things. It would, it would almost certainly include, um, uh, it would include, undoubtedly, his cleansing of the temple and all the mayhem that that caused. Um, that, was a, that was a direct... You know, in your face assault on the, uh, religious, uh, leaders of the day. And, uh, because they of course sanctioned all that, uh, all that money changing and all the, uh, all the commerce that was taking place, the buying and selling of animals and, uh, great exorbitant prices and all that. Because they were, they were taking a, a, a cut. Uh, so he was assaulting them there. That was undoubtedly part of what he means by these things. Also, uh and so that that occurred that occurred uh the previous day on Monday also on Monday by the way you remember after the cleansing immediately after Jesus miraculously healed some folks who were I believe it was uh blind in uh, verse 14 they were uh lame and blind uh, he healed them right there in the in the temple uh precinct uh, probably uh they were uh objecting to that for some some reason um and they also probably were objecting to or thinking about uh, Jesus' willingness to be welcomed and indeed received by the Passover pilgrims as Israel's Messiah two days prior on Sunday. He didn't say no, 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 no. Don't call me the Son of David. He didn't. He he absolutely let let all those all those um, uh, declarations and acclamations be made, and he didn't do anything to resist that and say, no, 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 you, you have it all wrong. I'm not, I'm not the one who you think I am. Although they had a, most of them had a perverted sense of what the Messiah was, uh, a twisted sense of it. The fact that Jesus didn't, um, didn't uh, refuse those accolades <clears throat> also is undoubtedly uh, part of these things that they're referring to, and probably even... Jesus' proclamation of the gospel that he was doing right then as they approached him. Because he was, of course, teaching that salvation from sin uh, comes through faith in him. And they, of course, rejected that message. Who gives you the right to do these things, Jesus? So, that's the uh, challenge from the religious leaders of the church, no less. Always got to keep that in mind. Uh, these people were church leaders which always there's a lot of application that you can uh, we need to uh, apply to today's church leaders. But secondly, we learn in this passage we look at or we see Jesus response to the leaders of the Old Testament church to their uh, to their uh, challenge to him and he responds to them with a counter question. He doesn't answer outright directly their question, but rather he responds with a counter question. He says in verse 24, "I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things." This is a technique of asking a counter question, a question with another question that Jesus employed with regularity actually in his uh, in his ministry. Um, And he basically says, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. You've got to answer mine first. So, what's his question? Well, that's in verse 25, at the beginning of verse 25. He says, The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven? Or from men? What's the source of John's authority? You tell me that. Now, Jesus, by, by... asking this counter question isn't actually evading their question okay he's not trying to avoid their question you'll see here in a second I'll, I'll get to that he's not evading their question what he is do because, and here's why because an honest and correct answer to Jesus question regarding John's authority by these men if they had correctly answered, the, the, uh, the question, which would have been, the right answer was from heaven. Jesus, uh, John's baptism was from heaven. It uh, had, had divine authority. Had they answered correctly, that would have unmistakably pointed um, to God himself as the source of Jesus' authority. You know why? Because, because had Jesus' opponents acknowledged that John's baptismal authority was from heaven, was from God then they would have also had to acknowledge that Jesus' authority was from God as well. Because central to John's baptism was his proclamation of the one who was mightier than himself. And he called on his hearers, John did, to repent and believe the gospel, which was to believe in the coming Messiah whom he himself identified as Jesus of Nazareth when he said, "Blessed is he who comes." Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, when he referred to as uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is recorded in the beginning of John's gospel. That was part of part and parcel of John's message. It was central to it. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand because the Messiah is at hand, and you believe in him, and he takes away your sins when you do. That was John's message. And so, since John's divinely authorized preaching and teaching and baptism pointed to Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus was in the process of inaugurating, even during the end of John's ministry, Jesus' own words and deeds were of necessity divinely authorized because John's were. And John's message was all about him. So, If they properly answered the question directed at them by Jesus and said, from heaven, they would have answered. That was the answer. It pointed directly to the answer to their question, which was, yeah, my authority is from heaven as well. In fact, I'm the king of heaven. He didn't say that, but uh, that's what had they understood fully. So, by asking this question that Jesus asked them, this counter question, he is what he is doing here and this is this is to the point that I made to you children here a little while ago. What he is doing is he is at least among other things, he is giving these wicked men, these wicked church leaders of the Old Testament church one last chance to acknowledge him as the promised Messiah, and as their Savior and their King. You get one more opportunity is, in effect, what's going on here. A chance, an opportunity which they foolishly, oh so foolishly squandered because of their hardness of heart which we'll get to here in the third point in just a second. But before we do, I want to make this point. If you're here, if you're out uh, listening remotely, or if you're even here in this room today, it's, it's possible. If you're here, today might be the last day of your life. You might die before the end of this day. I don't know that, and probably not, but it's certainly possible. God could take any one of us today, and if you're here today and you have never ever trusted alone in Jesus Christ, the God man, not Jesus the man, not Jesus God, but not man, but Jesus the God man, 100% God and 100% man, as the only one who can save you from the hell that you deserve, and and. and if you've never understood that you deserve hell, and understood that he's the only way that you are going to escape hell, and if you've never put your trust in him, and him alone, not your baptism, or your church membership, but him, to save you from hell and to be the king of your life, that is, you, uh, he is now in charge and you say, Lord, take me. If you've never done that, this may be the last day of your life. And it is possible, if that's the case, that God is giving you one last chance through this sermon to repent and to flee to Jesus. Not in that order. You, you flee to Jesus in faith and, that cause, and, and you repent simultaneously when you do. But he is giving you one last opportunity, perhaps, today to flee to Christ. To say, Jesus, I deserve to burn in hell forever, which is what we all deserve. We deserve God's wrath. Because we are all rebels, you're as truly just as much as you are, born and conceived that way, and we deserve it. But if we will accept the one, the mediator, the redeemer, the one who who purchases purchases us purchases us those of us who believe in him out of uh, God's the hands of divine justice, if you will, purchases us back. If you will believe in him. Alone, you will be saved. You will be heaven bound. God will be your father and your friend rather than your angry judge and your enemy. But only if you come to Christ. Only if you trust in him alone to save you. And this may be your last chance that God is giving you because you happen to be listening to my words and my voice. Take it. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Thirdly, and finally, so we've seen in this passage, Jesus' challenge from the leaders of the Old Testament church. We just looked at Jesus' response to the leaders of the Old Testament church. And now, let's talk a little bit about the hard-heartedness that is exhibited by the leaders of the Old Testament church. And we see this um, in a couple of different ways in this passage. First of all, that hard-heartedness is evident from the fact that these men... These particular men had to ask the question about the source of Jesus' authority in the first place. The fact that they even asked that question points to their hardness of heart. That question was asked in 23, by the way, verse 23. For you see, for the past three years now, Jesus has been openly performing miracle after miracle after miracle, raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, giving the, lime, the, 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 the lame back their ability to walk and, and, and uh, maneuver. Um, all sorts of things. Casting out demons. And each one of these miracles served as a confirmation of Jesus' claims to be the divine Messiah who would save people from their sins by his work and person. And the Sanhedrin had been observing Jesus closely for most of that three-year time. Not perhaps all of them all at once, like maybe the case on this occasion, um, although probably not all of them. But, but they, had, they had an eye on Jesus, as we know. All you have to do is, casual reading of the Gospel makes it very clear they were after him, and they were looking at what he was doing carefully. And they saw scabs of miracles, So they were fully aware of the many miracles attesting that testified to his identity as the Messiah, these men were. And they knew better because they were trained. They knew their Old Testaments. They knew the prophecies. They knew better than anyone else the overwhelming evidence that that Jesus exhibited of his divine origin, of his divine identity, and of his Messiahship. And yet they refused. Refused to acknowledge the obvious. They were, as Paul says, willfully suppressing the truth which they knew in unrighteousness. And they knew better than anyone else in that city, in that country. Deep down inside, they knew, you see, They knew the answer to their own question. They knew the answer to their question about the source of Jesus' authority, but their hardness of heart, their willful hardness of heart, prevented them from acknowledging what they knew to be the truth on some level. This is a classic example, folks. A classic example of man's capacity for self-deception. We are great liars. We are conceived as liars and we lie to ourselves best of all. Left to our own devices. If God isn't gracious. I remember years ago, and I've told this story before, but it's been a while, so uh, many of you haven't heard of it. But when, I remember when I was uh, a new Christian in, in uh, college at the university, and uh, one day I was walking into the student union, and you, you always saw in the, in the main open area of the student union building, you always saw tables around people you know, selling something, or uh, usually it was trying to get you to join some club or whatever. Well, there was a table... And uh, I saw some religious literature on it, and I was a young Christian, I didn't know better. I walked over um, and there was a a, a gal and I, I noticed uh, something that said Christian scientist. I was like, okay, I've heard about them, and I've heard they're not right. Uh you know, um, I didn't know a whole lot, but I, I knew something was wrong with them. So I, I but I I so I wanted to talk with them. So I started talking with them. I talked to this gal, this gal, and she had a glassy look in her eye which really spooked me. Um, and when she talked, it spooked me further. Um, I mean, she was brainwashed. She was just brainwashed. So here's, here's how brainwashed she was, but self-deception brainwashing. I, I ended up saying, so you believe that Jesus is, um, is God, right, or something? I, I, I think I asked that question. I think she thinks, oh, yes, oh, yes. You believe the Bible is the word of God? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is all a lie. Um, although she might have thought it was true, but then she said this. I said, "I said, so you believe then that men are sinful and uh, and need need a savior from their sin." And she said, "Oh no, no, men are not sinful. There is no she. I didn't, she didn't put it quite in these words, but I learned later they say there is no such thing as sin." Sin is bad thinking, according to the, they're not thinking correctly. Because everything is mind. And so, sin, what appears to be sin, is actually in your mind. And you're not, your mind is not thinking correct thoughts when you're thinking, seeing something that you think is sinful. So, she said she believed the Bible, and, she, and yet she says there is no such thing as sin. Talk about lying to yourself. Classic. And the cults do it all the time. I mean, it's not just the Christian science. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and, you know, and other aberrant groups. They do it all the time. Another a way that uh, non Christians deceive themselves, they'll say, uh, and I hope this isn't anybody listening to me, but if it is, listen up. Um, Since God is love, the Bible says God is love, right? Yeah, it does. Since God is love, He has to accept me into heaven, regardless of my shortcomings. Because he's love. That's a lie. That's a stupid lie. Because the Bible also said that God is justice. That God is righteousness. That God hates sin. And that God punishes rebellion against him. And the only people that God doesn't punish are those who are hidden in Jesus by faith, trusting in Jesus, and shielded from God's judgment because of what Jesus taking that judgment for those individuals. And yet, believe, people will say this, God is love, so he, I'm good. I'm good. Whatever happens when I take my last breath, I'm all good. Lying to themselves. Because on some level, they know they're not good. Because God gives everybody a conscience to inform them, you're not good. Another example... People who say, well, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, surely God will be okay with me and let me in. As if God's standards are the same as that person's standards. That what God would accept is the same as what the guy who says that or the gal who says that would accept. Utter lie. Utter foolishness. Stupidity. I'm basically a good person. Surely God sees me this way. That's another lie. You aren't basically a good person if you're not a Christian. And even if you are a Christian, the good in you is, is God. And what he has done in your life. There's nothing innately good about any of us. It's a lie to believe that. And yet non-Christians regularly tell themselves that lie. By the way, it's not just non-Christians that are vulnerable to self-deception, Christians can also deceive themselves. I'll give you some examples. We are deceiving ourselves when we believe that God is tolerant of certain sins that we tolerate, that we don't think are that big a deal. The, ex- the respectable sins, as uh, uh, Jerry Bridges puts it, we think they're okay. So I think probably God thinks they're you know not terribly annoying either, or bothersome to him either. Sins such as, just some examples, um, coarse jesting, a little lust, shading the truth, violating the Sabbath, making it my day rather than God's day, gossip, having a critical spirit. These are all examples of sins that Christians, if they're not careful, will tend to kind of, oh, it's not a big deal. I didn't, mil- I, I don't kill anybody. I'm faithful to my spouse. I go to church. I read my Bible. Doesn't matter. You can't excuse any of those things I just said. God doesn't. And we're deceiving ourselves when we do. We also are deceiving ourselves as Christians if we say, well, I can I can get away with certain sins once in a while. I can get I can get close to the fire without getting burned. No, you can't. No, you can't. You will get burned. You might not feel it, but you will get burned. There are consequences. We will pay a price, even as Christians, for pursuing a sinful agenda. Don't lie to yourself. The hardness, hard-heartedness of the religious leaders that approached Jesus was not only, not only evident in the Foolish question that they asked about the source of Jesus' authority, which they already knew the answer to. But it was also evident in their their uh, deliberations over Jesus' question to them. So Jesus asked them in verse twenty five, uh, "You know the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men?" And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, "If we say from heaven, he will say to us rightly. They knew that. Then why did you not believe John? Because John was all about me. In other words. But if we say from Men, we fear the multitude. Uh, for they all hold that John, John to be a prophet. You see, if they answered from men, and that was the answer that they wanted to give, of course, well, John's authority was from men. That wasn't, that wasn't divine authority. That's what they wanted to say. But then they knew they were, they were, they were cowards. So they knew they would incur the wrath of the common man, because most all the common folk uh, were convinced that John was a prophet, uh, as we read. And they didn't want that. And the common folks were all around. Um, And they said, if they answered from heaven, and Jesus responded as they knew he would, well, why didn't you believe him? Then they'd have to admit that they should have believed him and what he said about Jesus. And they had absolutely no intention of doing that. Hell was going to freeze over before they would admit that. They hated Jesus and everything he stood for. So rather than acknowledging his heavenly origin, the heavenly origin and the heavenly uh, personage uh, personage of Jesus, I'm not sure that is a word, but anyway, um, and rather than accepting and believing his message that he was the only hope of sinners and the king of his people, they feigned ignorance. We don't know. We don't know whether John's authority was from men or from heaven. That was a bold-faced lie. Further evidence of their hardness of heart. And there was yet further evidence, and that was evidence from Jesus' response to their response to his question, which is found in verse 27. Jesus says to them, after they said, we don't know, he said... Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is not saying, by responding this way, He's not saying to them, since you can't answer my question, then I won't answer yours. That's not what He is saying. He's saying, since you willfully refuse to believe the testimony that John the Baptist bore of my Messiahship, remember, He was a prophet gentlemen, whose divine inspiration and authority you dare not deny in front of these folks here. Since you refuse to believe John's testimony, there is no point in my repeating to you what John has already said since you have already closed your mind and your heart to me. I'm not going to waste my breath on you, is his point. They were so hardened. They were so hateful of God who wanted to save and came to save sinners who would turn and flee to Jesus. It's a very important lesson here for us today. We all, because we are sons and daughters of Adam, because we are, his sin is imputed to us, that first sin in the garden, and we exhibit and act on that sinful nature that we have from the get-go. We have a natural tendency to do just what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, did. And don't Fool yourself into thinking that you are above that. You are not. I am not. Left to our own devices, we do what they did. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We become cold and indifferent to the things of God that are staring us in the face. You walk out there at night and look at those stars. God is screaming at you. You watch those hummingbirds that flit around in the springtime. God is screaming at you. I'm here. And whatever percentage of the population doesn't see anything but a bird. Oh, it's a hummingbird. Uh. Or the flowers that grow and just cry out, there's a God who's beautiful like me. Who you need to worship. But you see, innately, we don't want that. We're rebels. And unless God is gracious, you will hate God until the end of your... Well, you'll hate God for eternity. You'll hate him in hell after you leave this world. The only thing that will prevent that from happening to every last one of us in the world is the grace of God. God has to work in the dead sinner's heart and give him or her eyes to see their need of Christ. First of all, eyes to see how awful their rebellion is. And then secondly, to, for them to see their need of Christ and flee to him in faith. If you understand the gravity of what's going on what I'm saying to you and you believe that Jesus is your only hope, that means the grace of God is at work in you if you you trust Jesus now. But you must put your soul trust in him. And by the way, for those of us who are already Christians, unless you have the grace of God, you will fall away. And I will fall away into apostasy. And we will be damned also. We need God's grace desperately. Whether we're a Christian or a non-Christian. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace. That you offer your gracious forgiveness and mercy to all those who will flee to your Son and Him alone uh, as their only hope of being forgiven by you and of being made a new creature. Lord, I ask, we ask, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who does not know Jesus savingly, that you would convict that individual of his uh, sinfulness, of your hatred of his sin, of your anger at his sin and him, but also of your willingness to have mercy upon him, should he flee to the Lord Jesus. And then would you please give the grace of faith to such an individual if he is listening. Lord, for the rest of us, would you please help us as Christians who are already professing Christ and already in Christ by faith alone. Would you please help us to realize that that we need constant sustenance from your sustaining from your grace in our lives. That left to our own devices we would inevitably apostatize. And that it's only you that holds us up. That causes our faith to continue in Jesus. And would you please give us a sense of um, a deeper sense of need for and gratitude for your grace in our lives. And would you please graciously help us, Lord, to kill what remains of the old man in us. We know we must be about that business of killing the old man, or we are not Christians. Our profession is false. Would you please cause us to kill uh, that old man increasingly that resembles Adam rather than Jesus? We ask this for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. Receive now God's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.